You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 505 of this podcast. Today is Saturday, November 26th, 2022. And that is to say it's the day after Black Friday. I don't know what you call that Saturday. Uh, Maybe that is filled with regret Saturday for some people this year, especially. But whatever you call this little period between Black Friday and Cyber Monday, uh, figuring out how much money you've got in the bank still weekend, maybe. I don't know. It is indeed Saturday, November 26th, 2022. And uh, I'll brag on myself just a little bit, maybe. I did not spend anything yesterday. Not directly, not personally, anyways. I didn't buy anything for Black Friday. I didn't order anything. There were a few things that I bought earlier in the week that probably had a little bit of a discount, come to think of it. But I didn't buy anything on Black Friday itself, and I think that's when typically most of the big deals are. We certainly didn't splurge. But my wife did order a grain mill. And part of the reason for this is that both my wife and our daughter have a problem with gluten. They have a sensitivity to it. And it just, it makes them feel really, really not so good. Uh, they they get sick when they eat something, uh, anything that has gluten in it. And the solution is in part to uh, just not eat anything that would otherwise be made with grain or flour or whatnot. But when that doesn't work or when that's just too much to bear, as everyone else is still eating food that is, uh, you know, breaded and whatnot, what they will do is they will eat uh, alternative flour, uh, alternative grain produced food items. But that gets expensive, right? And and even with regards to, you know, wheat, uh, you don't, you don't necessarily get all the nutritional value, even if you don't have a food sensitivity it's not quite as good for you as it could be. And it, it doesn't taste quite as good either. I mean, this is true of a lot of modern foods. There is an exchange that's being made in the interest of longevity and in the interest of being able to travel well and sit on the shelf well until somebody comes and buys it and takes it home and cooks it up and eats it. There's some trade-off that is done and that includes with regards to breads and grains and pastas and things like that. So this grain mill, it's pretty exciting. It was on a really good deal. And it has two uh, small millstones and a little hopper up top that my wife is going to be able to pour in uh, wheat to, or pour pour wheat into rather. Also some other non-wheat grains. She'll be able to pour in there and make flour out of those as well. It'll be far more cost-effective, even though the mill itself is uh, a bit on the spendy side. I think $270 is what it came out to, even with a significant discount of 85 or something. But 
it is it's worth it for us to have a grain mill given how many kids we have and also given how expensive how much more expensive everything is more expensive now than it was a year ago or five years ago but how much more expensive non-gluten gluten-free uh grains are or flour is so that's pretty exciting i mean that's the only real splurge there was another thing as well that i think is still on hold because we kind of wanted to see where we came out uh after the weekend or through the weekend still thinking about it a another purchase another uh acquisition of some fabric but uh, i'll be honest one of the things that uh, i was hoping we would see before we make that purchase was what the response is going to be to my inquiry yesterday and yes on thanksgiving day as well when i actually got paid uh, my second paycheck with the new company, and it was significantly less than what I was expecting given the number of hours I worked. And so something I think is disconnected there. Something didn't get approved or make it all the way through or get looked at, I think. Uh, but I'm trying to get that resolved a little bit. It looks to me as though maybe somebody did not hit the approval button prior to the holidays and maybe all the overtime that was in a two-week period, which was a pretty good pretty good chunk. I mean, it was, I think, 35 hours of OT. Uh, all of that was left on the cutting room floor. Uh, but you know what? Depending on how they do things, and this being a new company and not necessarily being sure on the front end what the modus operandi is, uh, you know, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves having seen that, having expected it to look a certain way, and then actually experiencing uh, a little bit of a different outcome so far, the second paycheck, kind of want to wait and see and be a little bit more conservative. But, you know, it's really, it's it's a, a pity that we're in that boat. Yeah, it is. I'm not trying to complain. We just came out of Thanksgiving. I don't want to be grumbling and uh, negative and, and all that, but it really is unfortunate that so many, not just my household, so many are looking at the Christmas season coming up, the holiday season that we're now in the midst of right now between Thanksgiving and Christmas and feeling pinched, feeling like, hmm, is it wise, is it responsible to spend money, right? There's an article from The Daily Wire by Ben Zeisloft that I was just looking at this morning, which tells me that I'm not alone. I'm not alone. Uh, Approximately 39% of respondents to a Boston Consulting Group survey will, quote, buy more at discounters or value retailers, end quote, while 51% will cut back on non-essential purchases, end quote, and 48% will, quote, go out less to save money. The majority of respondents, nevertheless, intend to participate in Black Friday and will more strongly emphasize bargain hunting. And so there is a uh, there's a curious trend, and I don't know how this could possibly be true. Uh, There's a curious trend where all the rest of the world, (laughs) developed world, is expected to spend a lot less, but 
the United States is, is expected to spend 6% more. I, you know, who who are we asking? We're asking the citizens. Um, I, I don't know. I, I don't know who is expecting Americans to spend 6% more this year than last year. German and French shoppers, by contrast, will spend 15% less, while their counterparts in Australia and the United Kingdom will spend 18% less. Maybe that has something to do with energy prices, given everything with Ukraine and Russia. I know that Europe is on uh, you know, energy austerity going into the winter. I know that's the case. And you know what? If your energy costs are through the roof, uh, you really, you, you can't, right? You can't afford to spend as much as you were on food and shopping. Uh, you just can't. It's just the, the way that it is. Now, I look here a little further down. Holiday retail sales in the United States are expected to grow between 6% and 8% since last year to possibly surpass $960 billion, $1 trillion, according to data from the National Retail Federation, although the growth appears to surpass the average 4.9% annual increase witnessed over the past decade, the expansion will be mostly eclipsed by inflation, which rose year over year at a 7.7% rate as of last month, according to a report from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Aha! Okay, so there you go. So there's your 6%. It's expected to go up 6%, but the inflation rate, <laughs> if you factor in the inflation rate, isn't it actually contracting? Isn't that right? Uh, do I have that right? I don't know. It. I think that's correct, right? I, let me just say, adjusted for inflation, yes, we are definitely spending less. But, you know, I just read and just finished actually this week, G. Edward Griffin's The Creature from Jekyll Island, a second look at the Federal Reserve. And I didn't realize that I recognized his face until I, I looked up the name of the author and I thought, oh, hey, I've seen that little video. There's an old black and white video of the same guy, the, the author of this book, talking about the communist playbook here in the U.S. and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and lo and behold, this is just him, older, having written this book, very much along similar lines. Uh, but if you haven't, if you haven't, watched any of these old, uh, you know, 1960s John Birch Society uh, lectures, they are interesting. Right? They, they are interesting food for thought. I, I am reluctant. I want to hedge my bets on whether this is totally legit and whether they're totally right or whether some of these things are made up or exaggerated. But nevertheless, take a listen because it, it is eerie even 50 years ago plus how descriptive this is of what does seem to be the communist playbook, uh, the leftist playbook here in the U.S. Here is G. Edward Griffin on communist smear tactics. In 1943, the following directive was issued from party headquarters to all communists in the United States. It read, When certain obstructionists become too irritating, label them after suitable buildups, as fascist or Nazi or anti-Semitic and use the prestige of anti-fascist and tolerance organizations to discredit them. In the public mind, constantly associate those who oppose us with those names which already have a bad smell. 
the association will, after enough repetition, become fact in the public mind. And doesn't that sound familiar? I mean, that, that, that sounds like it basically uh, is describing the past several years, right? Everybody who voted for Trump is a fascist and the punch a Nazi thing and uh, Trump is literally Hitler and you know the rest, right? Which I don't want to get into. That's not what this episode is about. And for that matter, too, I don't actually want to talk about the creature from Jekyll Island all that much just yet either. I want to give it some more thought. I read it. I finished it. There's a lot that could be said. It is uh, it's a disturbing read. It It is very detailed. There's a lot of history in here that I've corroborated. There was a meeting at a place called Jekyll Island. That is real. Uh, the Federal Reserve is real. It, it exists uh, fractional reserve banking. Yeah, that's real. That exists. You know, there's several things that check out here, but I'm not quite ready to give a, uh, adequate, uh, suitably lengthy treatment, detailed take, uh, on the creature from Jekyll Island. So I'm just going to put that off to the side and just mention when I look at our family budget, this year versus a year ago versus five years ago versus 10 years ago, it is bittersweet, right? It is bittersweet to recognize, regardless of what is driving economic policy, fiscal policy, international affairs, regardless of that, where the rubber meets the road on our home economy, on our personal budget, it is just the fact that inflation, adjusted for inflation, my wages have not gone up very much at all over the past decade, even though I've spent the past decade building, uh, I think, a fairly robust technical uh, and industrious uh, resume. And I'm now a controls programmer. I would have thought a decade ago, being a controls programmer and making as much money as I am per hour it would go a really, really far away. Well, the trouble is, it's all relative, right? How much you're making, if it's relative how much things cost, uh, well, you, you might not be uh, doing much more than just keeping your head above water. And you know what? That's enough. That's fine. We just got out of Thanksgiving. I'm not complaining because ultimately, my God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. It's not to say there's nothing to... See here, with regards to uh, you know what we should be arguing for, advocating for, talking about, but just not in this episode. We're not going to get into it just yet. What I do want to talk about a little bit more is Thanksgiving Day. And I also, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that yesterday, my wife and I celebrated uh, 16 years of marriage. And when I say celebrated, uh, we're actually going to be going out for dinner today or this evening, we recognized that we wished one another happy uh, anniversary. We've been married for 16 years and uh, a little bit of change now one day, uh, 16 years plus one day. And I'm so very thankful for my wife, Lauren, and for our family, for our children, for our household. We may not have it all. We may not always have things go according to plan. There are ups and downs, but when we said in sickness and in health, for richer or poorer, 
till death do us part. That's what we meant. That's what we still mean. That's what we will continue on meaning by God's grace. And uh, and there's a blessing in that. There really is. I've been hugely blessed to have married Lauren Elizabeth, uh, now mullet, but she was Duff, Lauren Elizabeth Duff. And we both alike have been very blessed to have these eight children, seven very handsome sons and one beautiful daughter, uh, all of which, and us besides, were sick over the past week. We're still getting over it. But again, you can say there's a good purpose that God has even in our potentially getting sick or actually getting sick and then recovering. There can be a good purpose in that. And then we look for the opportunity to honor God and to serve one another in the midst of that purpose, even getting uh, under the weather for a little bit. But two days ago was Thanksgiving, and it's not coincidental that our anniversary, our wedding anniversary, Lawrence and mine, is so close to Thanksgiving. That was one of the things that we decided early on when we were talking about marriage and wanting to get married and looking at the state of marriage in the people that we knew and the family that we had and the country at large, you know, we wanted to basically make a statement with when we were getting married and have it set up to where all of our anniversaries moving forward in the long view would be the same week as Thanksgiving so that we would be reminded to be thankful for the blessing that it is to be married. Marriage is a blessing And a lot of married couples forget that and they stop treating their marriage as a blessing, as a gift from God. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. And it's important for us to remember that and to remind ourselves of that. I think a lot of people thought that we were probably pregnant uh, when we decided to get married, when we did, irrespective of (laughs) when finals week was uh, at Cedarville. We were both attending Cedarville. But I was thinking to myself, Lauren and I were thinking to ourselves, this is symbolic and it's important in the long view. And see, this is one of those areas where, again, too, sometimes you have to take the long view in order to do the meaningful thing. And sometimes that means a trade-off in the short term. And that's not always the case. That's not always necessary. But it just didn't make a lot of sense for us to say, we're going to wait to get married until next year or the year after or three years from now when we've maybe possibly finished our bachelor's degrees. That wasn't interesting to me in part because I was looking at how much debt it was. It was over $20,000 a year in debt that we were taking on. And I was thinking, I don't even know that I should be here. I don't know what I want to study. I don't know what I want to major in. I want a family. That's what I want. And at the time, it was crazy talk. A lot of people just scoffed at that. And they said, well, you know, if you're smart, if you're capable, if you want to amount to anything, you got to go to college. And then I think in the intervening years, the Great Recession and people like Mike Rowe coming forward and saying, no, no, hold on. Why are we assuming all these young people need, need to go to college? Why are we devaluing hard work from people who don't go to college. Does everybody need a college degree, especially when it's as expensive as it is? What kind of jobs are they getting? What kind of a work ethic are they developing? What kind of 
contribution are they making to society? And hey, look over here. Here's people who are in the trades who don't go to college, but they know how to weld, for instance. They're plumbers, they're electricians, they're, they're people who work with their hands and work with hand tools. They make really good money and they're out of debt and they own their own business and they have a nice big house and they have a big, beautiful life and they're happy. And here, look at these kids over here who went to college and now they're a barista at Starbucks. Which would you rather for your children? Maybe we need to question some of our assumptions. Well, now, right now in hindsight, there's a vindication, I think, of my reluctance, my reservation. Now it's become more commonplace for people to say, ah, yes, you know what? There's a lot There's a lot to recommend pumping the brakes on going to college, especially if you don't know what it is that you want to study or major in. Also, what's our definition of success? Is our definition of success that the college diploma is an end unto itself, or is the college diploma a means to an end and are we keeping in mind what the end ought to be? A lot of folks still are not keeping in mind what the end needs to be. They are just stuck on a track of going with the flow, doing what everybody else is doing. But I think that's less and less. I think 16 years since Lauren and I were at Cedarville, 16 years of economic reality and very much changed geopolitical situation and domestic political situation social situation has opened up a lot of eyes to other possibilities. And I think another 16 years, another 46 years, if the Lord tarries, if the Lord permits, uh, Lord willing and the creek don't rise, as they say, uh, another 46 years. And are we going to look back and say, oh man, I really wish that we had stayed at Cedarville and finished our degrees and gone into the working world. You know, are we going to say that? Well, if we do, I'll be shocked. But I don't think we are. And I don't think anybody else is going to say that looking at us either, in part because if we had waited even one more year, our oldest son, Josiah, would not have been born. If we had, if we had waited two more years, then Josiah and Eli would not have been born. If we had waited three more years to finish our college degrees, our three oldest sons, Josiah, Eli, and Solomon, would not be here. And that's a thought that uh, I, I don't like. I don't like that. If they had not come along and if we had gone into the workforce instead, who knows? You know, maybe several others of our kids would not be here either. It's kind of like Back to the Future. Marty McFly goes in this time machine with uh, the doc and then they change something. Maybe it's an accident. Maybe it's intentional. They're trying to fix some other piece of the uh, outcome that they've accidentally messed up. And then all of a sudden he's disappearing or his siblings no longer are going to exist because his parents, uh, you know, didn't get together or whatnot or, you know, what have you, right? So also here, I, I think it's a similar sort of a deal, but I'm glad that even with all of the struggle, even with all of the growing up that Lauren and I had to do. And there's no doubt about it. We had a lot of growing up to do. We still have some growing up to do. There's people that think 36 years old, both of you being so young. Man, are you, are you done having kids yet? You're so young. And I say, we still have some growing up to do, but the culture around us needs to learn a thing or two from our priorities. 
you know, I, I was looking over Lauren's shoulder yesterday at a photo album from our wedding. And boy, howdy, in some of those pictures, I am just, I, I look like a baby. She looks great. She looks like a babe. Uh, I look like a baby. And, uh, and, and my beard game has gotten much better too, she says. She, you, know, you know, your beard nowadays uh, is so much better. But back then it was a little bit, it, 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 it didn't age well. I'll, I'll put it that way. I, I don't have my beard like that anymore. But nevertheless, on the one hand, I look at those old pictures of us and I think, yeah, I can see some of why folks might have been telling the two of us, hey, pump the brakes. But on the other hand, I can see a look on my face in other pictures that I recognize as resolution, as commitment, as uh, being very sober about, no, this is what is best. This is the thing that is good to do. This is my vision of the good life is that I get married and my wife and I uh, start out together. Yeah, you, you have a couple of options as I see it. If you're a poor college student, you can be a poor college student by yourself or, you know, more typically a roommate to some other poor college student who is of the same gender. That's more appropriate if you're going to uh, do that. If you're going to be a roommate with somebody you're not married to, have it be somebody of the same gender. But you can be a poor college student who's alone, who's studying, who's waiting for years, you know, enjoy your life with uh, friends and hanging out and all that, all the rest. Uh, or you could be a, a poor college student who gets married. And uh, you know, there's definitely practical reasons why if you know what you want to do and you're studying and you're applying yourself, it might be worth it to just knuckle down and get it done. But, you know, I, I, th- th- there's also... There's also a practical reality that if you're going to be a poor college student, why not be a poor college student who's married to another poor college student, and then you can help each other out, right? Why, why not do that? If we have all of this money to loan to young people to go to college, you know, $25,000 even 16 years ago, I hate to think of what it is now at a lot of these same institutions. It just seems to go up and up and up. It doesn't go back. It doesn't go down. If we have all this money to loan to a young couple, $25,000 each, and they're already having their room and board paid for, uh, why would we scoff at them getting married, right? Why, why would we do that? I think it says something about our priorities being a little bit mixed up. If we think the economic value of increasingly the first 10 years of their adult life is better committed to making money and going on vacation and partying and being all about themselves, why well, why does that follow? And does that match a tradition? Uh, does that match a biblical tradition? Does that match a tradition that we find in Western civilization? What is the outcome going to be? Well, one of the outcomes that we're seeing increasingly is young people are either not getting married at all they get so used to being single that they just stick to that. They become committed to that. They lose their interest in getting married at all, seeing other failed marriages around them. Uh, or when they do get married, they have not enough children to even replace themselves. 
They're not even replacing themselves if they have any children. So what we're seeing is we're seeing, uh, you know, Chuck Schumer, even Democrat senator, saying Americans are not replacing themselves, not reproducing uh, as they should. And so we don't have enough workers. And if that's true now, well, it's been true since, uh, you know, before Lauren and I got married, right? That's been true for some time. That's not a recent phenomenon. Also, too, he's not mentioning that there's a lot of able-bodied men, 7 million, according to Mike Rowe, who've just checked entirely out of the labor force. But it's not shocking, right? It's not shocking that you would have men and women who drop out of the workforce at a certain point because what's the point, right? What's the point? What's the point when you're telling me it's corrupt or it's wrong or it's oppressive that I would get ahead or I would do well, that I would have children, that I would raise those children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. You know, you're going to give me all these doom and gloom stories about marriage. So I don't want to get married. You're going to give me these doom and gloom stories about having children. So I don't want to have children, you know, and then you're going to penalize uh, profitable work. You're going to put a hidden tax in, in the way of inflation. You're going to shut down the economy. All these things, right? All these things. A lot of them at that level are outside of our ability to control. So far as I can tell, what is in our control is if we serve the Lord, if we trust the Lord, that is in our control. What is in our control is if we find a, you know, in my case, young woman who loves the Lord, uh, do we lay claim ASAP Act now while supplies last. Uh, you know, it's funny. I, it wasn't very long uh, of us both being at Cedarville the first semester that I was there that I'm noticing, I'm, I'm observing. Uh, there are other young guys who also are noticing my, at the time, uh, girlfriend slash fiance and chatting with her and being friendly. And I thought to myself, you know what? I, on the other hand, now that people know that we're talking about getting married, she's getting encouragement to shop around. Uh, how long before, if I don't talk her into marrying me, uh, she maybe potentially breaks up with me? Or uh, one of these guys asks her out and, and she ends up you know, being more interested in them? I don't know, right? I, until we have uh, said I do, she's potentially a free agent. And so maybe, you know, maybe this is, uh, it's a now or never sort of a thing. I need to lock it down, right? Well, that is something that young people can control. Some 20 something young guy, young Christian guy who wants to live for the Lord, wants to have a family, wants to have a wife and children and a home and all that. He can't control what the Federal Reserve does in the way of raising interest rates and constricting the money supply or expanding the money supply or printing money or any of that. He can't control that, right? Just no way. He can't control whether the economy is going to grow at 5% or whether it's going to contract at uh, you know half a percent. He can't control that. He can't control whether big companies that he maybe was putting app applications in with are going to announce huge company-wide, worldwide layoffs. 
He's got no control over that. What he can do is he can pick up whatever work is legal and honest and might pay. He can put his nose to the grindstone. He can put pencil to paper and come up with a plan for how he's going to try and grow his capacity to provide for and protect a wife and children. He can do those things. But if we if we try like gangbusters to give him a totally alternative uh, vision in which he's just living for himself and then he gets really good at that, he gets really, really good at only thinking about himself, well then at a certain point, maybe that's all it is and he just settles in and that's what life is about. And I think that's what we're seeing. I think we're seeing that in the macro and it's very unfortunate and it is causing problems. Uh, I think there's folks that see no problem whatsoever with that, particularly where they want to see a reduction in Christian influence, American Christian influence in particular, both domestically and abroad. Hey, by all means, let's encourage more of that, right? But for Christians, we ourselves, as we're trying to think big picture here, we've got to look at it differently. We just do. We just do. Moving on into uh, <laughs> more talk of Thanksgiving. Last of the Mohicans is a Thanksgiving film, or at least that's what I was told when I asked on Thanksgiving Day. I put a question out on Facebook. What are some good Thanksgiving Day movies? Because we weren't feeling very well. I certainly wasn't. I think everyone else was more on the mend, and then uh, I kind of rebounded a little bit. and was just not, not feeling so great. So I asked, what are, what are some great Thanksgiving films, good ones? Which, which are your favorites? Asked my family and friends on social media. And two films were mentioned several times. Uh, and I was rather surprised. Nobody mentioned <laughs> uh, Charlie Brown Thanksgiving. Uh, although we did watch that because we, we do watch it every year for Thanksgiving. But Planes, Trains, and Automobiles was one. Last of the Mohicans was the other one. We watched Last of the Mohicans, and that was the first time any of my kids, any of our kids, uh, had seen it. Great, great film, but also no real mention of Thanksgiving. And so I found myself wondering, why, you know, why is everybody talking about this as a Thanksgiving film? And I think part of the reason is because it sets the stage for understanding you know, as sometimes historical dramas do, a, a period in time, a period in American history in particular, where it was not to be taken for granted that the outcome was going to be uh, what it ended up being. That is, that these 13 colonies would prevail, they would carve their way of life out of the American wilderness, despite threats from Native Americans, despite threats from powers like France, they would prevail. It was not necessarily going to go that way when the French and Indian War happened uh, a mere 20 years or so before the American Revolution, before the War for Independence. So Last of the Mohicans is this film set... Uh, you know, basically patterned after a book by James Fenimore Cooper, set at this point that 
makes sense of the American Revolution, and it also made it possible for there to be an American Revolution. If the French and Indian War had gone differently, if the Native Americans had succeeded in slaughtering the colonials, killing all of the men, women, and children who were in the way or were encroaching, as it was seen by some of them, well, then we would not be having this conversation as Americans, as we see ourselves. The world would look very different. The the last quarter of a millennia would have unfolded very, very differently. If the French had held on and expanded their grip on North America, this would be a very, very different world than it is today. But also, too, there's, there's a complexity to the story in Last of the Mohicans that we need to grapple with on a Thanksgiving. Maybe this is part of why it's a Thanksgiving film as well. You don't just have English people fighting Frenchmen and fighting Indians in Last of the Mohicans. You have Europeans fighting Europeans and you have Indians fighting Indians. And it's complicated. And it was. From everything I've read of early American history, it was complicated. It wasn't all one or the other, Europeans versus indigenous peoples, first peoples, first nations peoples, whatever you want to call them, right? You have separate, distinct European tribes. You have separate, distinct Native American tribes. And they don't all get along on either side. And sometimes, actually, some of the Europeans get along much better with some of the Native Americans than they either do with the folks who are more genetically similar to them. And that's just history. That's just the way that it is. It's the way it's always been throughout history in every time and place. It's not one size fits all to where you can just put people in a box because of the color of their skin or because of their ethnos. It doesn't work that way. It's just not reasonable. That's not a fair way. It's not a well-informed way to approach history. And so we watched it, right? We watched Last of the Mohicans and it's the stirring film. And, you know, I was curious. I I just, I thought I would do a search after it came up so many times in the Facebook survey I conducted of friends and family. And I did a search to see, okay, do other people, is it, is it everyone who sees this as a Thanksgiving film? I didn't find an answer to that question, but I did find this article by a Walter Chaw at decider.com from last year in which he, he says, uh, Last of the Mohicans presents this dream of manhood, right? He describes it as both attractive and demented, as attractive as it is demented. Basically, because there's this violence and there's this strength and this manly uh, warrior spirit. You know, there's good warriors, there's bad warriors, there's those who are trying to rescue the uh, two sisters who have been taken captive. And there's also those who are uh, basically uh, interested in either keeping them as a slave or burning them alive, killing them as vengeance against the white man. You know, these two sisters, they haven't done anything except for show up. That's all, right? They're two innocent women. 
But to say that this is a demented vision of manhood, uh, I just I think it's I think it's ridiculous. I think it's sad, quite frankly. Uh, I think what's demented here is not that you have a picture of masculinity, virtuous masculinity that is capable of violence. I don't think that's demented. I think what's demented here is that we would say this view of masculinity uh, is toxic. Oh, what is this? Right? These, these Mohegan warriors, or this one who's kind of adoptive, uh, Hawkeye, played by Daniel Day-Lewis, them being willing to fight and kill and die to save these two white women, uh, you know, that's, that's demented. That's toxic masculinity. No, 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 no. I think what's actually toxic masculinity is that you would write a piece like this because you feel so threatened by some other man being brave and strong in a way that you'll never be. I, I think that's actually toxic masculinity. And I say that feeling, you know, not like the, the most uh, capable warrior right at the moment, having been weak, uh, sick, suppressed the past week. I'm not going to brag about how I could beat you in a fight or anything like that. Having had asthma my whole life, I'm not necessarily going to brag that I, you know, I, I would be running up and down the uh, wooded uh, mountainside like these guys are, right? But then if an innocent woman, if my woman in particular were ever in danger, I should hope to. I, I should hope to be able to run up and down the mountainside and shoot that straight over that far of a distance and reload that quickly. I should hope to be able to uh, have good hand-to-hand fighting skills that would win the day and save my beloved. I should hope to be able to do that. Uh, and I also, too, for that matter, should hope to not have my legacy smeared as nothing more than me just being a white colonizer. And so long as I'm white, that's all you can see. That's all that matters to you. I think that's a very, very hollow and very sad way of looking at history or summarizing uh, a great film like this. All you see is just, ah, these Europeans, they pitted the, the red man against one another. And, you know, if not for the Europeans showing up, these indigenous peoples, they would have lived at peace with nature and one another forever and ever, because uh, that's what we think. You know what? Read a book. Read 1491. Read 1493. That's not the way that it was. Read history. It's people, right? It's not a European problem that you have violence of one tribe against another. It's a people problem. It's a human condition problem. And uh, Europeans don't have a monopoly on it. But what Europeans are maybe particularly special in is making war in a way, constructing society in such a way that allows them to dominate. And I think also too, by contrast, non-Western folks have uh, a disadvantage, which they have increasingly in the modern era sought to negate by eroding Western civilization where, where they haven't emulated Right. There's two there's there's two options. There's two options of what to do with regards to uh, Western civilization for those who are non-Western. 
One, join it. Two, try to erode it. Uh, or three, just get out of the way and relegate yourself to not being uh, you know, the strongest one around in, in a trading deal or in a war or what have you. Right? Those are your options. Either imitate it, join it, or get out of the way. Uh, or, or try to destroy it. And I, I think, unfortunately, we've got a lot of folks from within Western civilization who will opt for the latter, for the latter most. Uh, they don't think Western civilization is so great. Part of the reason why they're free to critique their own civilization is because this is Western civilization. That's one of the things that makes Western civilization so strong, actually. Interestingly enough, throughout history, that self-criticism, that ability to speak freely and to question and to push back, uh, it does have limits. And we might be seeing those work against us or used against us uh, as members of Western civilization, as members of the American civilization. It, it's one thing to critique towards the end of improvement, though, right? If that's the goal. If the goal is to critique to the point that you want a civilization to just kill itself, uh, that's that's different, right? That's a horse of a different color. So do embrace the critical self-examination to a point, but don't destroy yourself. You know, neither be too good nor too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? We read in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, and uh, I, I think there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of what we're seeing in our day of deconstructing our own civilization, our own families, our own faith, our own nation, the American nation in my context, there's a lot of what we see in deconstruction that is not about improvement. It's about destruction. Uh, my cousin uh, Sterling and then also my uncle Merle recently were back and forth a little bit on this topic uh, again on Facebook because I'm back on Facebook for the past year and my uncle Merle in particular was trying to address this problem of young post-Christian people in America increasingly deconstructing their faith, going online, telling deconversion stories, and explaining why they stopped being a Christian, stopped going to church, stopped uh, identifying themselves as Christian. And in their back and forth, my cousin Sterling and his dad, my dad's younger brother, Merle, and they're back and forth. One of the things that Sterling said is deconstruction is just another term for destruction. And that's right. That, that's, that is true. That's sadly the case. We have a lot of young people who have been taught to destroy where they come from. And ultimately, if they don't stop, if they don't turn around and adopt a more uh, healthy, functional attitude and way of relating to their heritage and their upbringing and where they come from, uh, they ultimately will destroy themselves. And I think that's okay for the folks who want to rule the world. They are kind of like Chrissy Teigen telling some young gal uh, that they're bickering with online, kill yourself, right? But, but it's, you know, that's actually, you know, what Chrissy Teigen said privately to that girl so briefly, so shortly, so succinctly, that that might be a mercy compared with uh, 
the mind game that's been played with so many young people when they do go off to college, actually. They go off to college, and the way that they're being taught to think and reason, without a check, without a constructive paradigm of because I'm made in God's image, because my neighbor is made in God's image, it really does amount to kill yourself. But when it's so complicated in the way that it's presented, and it's presented as being somehow a good thing, a virtuous thing, a noble thing, an uplifting thing, when there is no higher purpose, it's devilishly hard for a lot of these young people to see through uh, until they're committed, until they are absolutely all in and sold on deconstructing their own selves. C.S. Lewis has a really great quote, which I'll share with you here. You cannot go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. It is good that the window should be transparent because the street or garden beyond it is opaque. How if you saw through the garden too? It is no use trying to see through first principles. If you see through everything, then everything is transparent. But a wholly transparent world is an invisible world. To see through all things is the same as not to see. That is to say, if you see through everything, at the end of it, you're blind and you can't see anything. There has to be a point on the other end of deconstructing. Otherwise, it's just death. And that's the secret. That's the secret to understanding this moment that we live in is the left hates God. And scripture promises that all who hate God love death. That's what we're told. And that bears out again and again throughout history. Those who hate God love death. Even those who love God sometimes grapple with that sinful nature that hates God, the old man who has to be put to death, has to be put off. But nevertheless, those who are committed, diametrically opposed, they set their face against God, they're enemies of God. Those who hate God love death. And unfortunately, we have a lot of young people in America who are increasingly taught to hate God and to love death. There's a culture of death that is embracing self-destruction even as it is championing deconstruction. And we can't be about that. We have to be about something better. You know, last of the Mohicans again, to speak to that. Yeah, there's a lot of killing and there's a lot of dying and there's a lot of war in this film. But what is the point, right? You can say, oh, I see through all of that. All it is is just fighting and war. And, and actually, that was a comment that was made by one of my kids and my wife yesterday he says, oh, it's, you know, that's all the film was. Uh, you know, I had asked as soon as the film was over, credits were rolling. I said, oh, what did you guys think? And one of my older sons said, wow, that was quite a movie. I said, yeah, yeah, it is. And then John, who, yes, had been watching it. John, our four-year-old, said, uh, I liked the killing parts. <laughs> I said, whoa, okay, that's yeah, that's really concerning. Uh, we might need to talk. Um, but then my other son and my wife they said, well, that was pretty much the whole movie. That's all the movie was, right? And I said, no, 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 no. See, that's, that's the mistake that a lot of people make when they look at history or when they look at films like this. 
they say, ah, it's just killing, right? That's all there is to it. It's just death and dying and fighting and war. Wait a second, but why, right? Why is Uncas willing to die at the end there? Because he has fallen in love with this young woman who is now a captive. He's fallen in love with her and he wants to save her. And tragically too, when he's been murdered, when he's been killed, he fights and he dies at the hands of Magua. She has fallen in love with him as well. She fell in love with Uncas, who's now just been killed, and she throws herself off the cliff. And you say, that's that's tragic. That's some Romeo and Juliet stuff right there. And that's not to say that she should have just ended her life like that, but then her whole heart has just been killed in this man who she had fallen in love with. Irrespective of whether he's a Native American or she's a European, it doesn't matter to either of them, apparently. But then you've got Chingachgook, who's the father. And when he sees that his only son has been killed, he flies into a rage and he cuts his way through everyone who's between him and Magua. And they fight and it's brief and it's brutal, but he avenges his son. And you look at that and you think, all that is is just killing? Well, it could be. It could be, except if the point of it was to save the woman you love, right? And I I talked about this in our episode about no time to die. Saving the world is one thing. That's whatever, right? Save the world, great. Maybe you did, maybe you didn't. That's such a big claim that if you want to convince yourself that you uh, moved the needle, you can. It's hard to disprove that. Also, though, at the same time, it's hard to prove that you did. You fall in love with a decent woman, and she's in danger, and you save her? Ah, well, that's something different. That's something special, right? Your child is in danger, and you fight to save them. You know whether you succeeded or you didn't. That's something special, right? And that's that's the stuff that civilization is made of. You take that away because people just decide they don't like your civilization anymore. They don't like their own civilization anymore. They want to tear it down, destroy it. For one, <clears throat> that's a very evil thing. But for two, people don't work anymore. People don't participate anymore. People don't get engaged anymore. They don't pay attention anymore. They don't give thanks anymore. That's what we need to be taking away from Last Mohicans, in my view, in my opinion. There's something that transcends ethnos and tribe, or that precedes it, maybe we should say, that is above it. And that is the love between a man and a woman. And if they have children, the love that a father has for his son, for instance. That's what transcends. That's what proceeds. That's what men fight and die for. That's what men work their whole lives long for, to provide for, to carve out of the wilderness, to endure danger for. And you know what? We should be thankful for that. It's not easy, but it's worth it. The moment we stop thinking that that's worth it, I think we have embraced death, and we ought not to. That's not a vision of the good life that we'll endure, and that's not what God calls us to. Moving on, 
Uh, a few items here I want to touch on before we close out. Uh, I was sent a number of links by my neighbor two houses down, J.P. Chavez, over Thanksgiving. And then also, uh, I think one of them he sent yesterday as well. But just being sick and the holidays and work, I, I, I didn't get to them until yesterday. And then I caught up. I caught up on all of them. And it took me the whole day long of remote programming and watching and listening to do so. But there's a piece at First Things Magazine by Carl Truman, published actually yesterday, David French and the Future of Orthodox Protestantism. JP must have sent this one to me yesterday because it was only published yesterday. Uh, (laughs) Carl Truman talks in this article about David French. And if you aren't familiar, David French is a big Eva establishment Republican conservative Protestant Christian commentator. He represents the establishment that would never vote for Trump and they look down on the folks who did. And they they, they do. I mean, they do. They, they look down on the folks who did vote for Trump, who would vote for Trump, who support Trump. They look down on the folks who would argue that you should too. Uh, David French writes for several important establishment, Republican establishment, conservative outlets, including but not limited to National Review. He's been a senior counsel for the ACLJ and the Alliance Defending Freedom. He's lectured at Cornell. He served as president for the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. He was a staff writer at National Review from 2015 to 2019, a senior fellow at the National Review Institute, also U.S. Army 2007 to 2014. He was a major in the Judge Advocate General's Corps. David French is well-connected, senior editor of the Dispatch, contributing writer for The Atlantic, well-read, articulate, establishment character. Uh, Carl Truman takes him to task in a, I think, polite way, but in a clear way, for a misguided at best, dangerous at worst, stand with regards to the Respect for Marriage Act, so-called. David French is willing to throw in the towel on so-called marriage equality and to affirm that marriage equality is just what it is now. That's what we now are going to conserve among everything uh, else. Among all other things, we're going to conserve recognition of gay marriage as being every bit the same as heterosexual marriage. David French writes, for his part, in the one article or one of the two articles, I should say, that Carl Truman is responding to at the dispatch.com. It's a follow-up piece to something he published at The Atlantic in support of the Senate's version of the Respect for Marriage Act. Uh, I'll, I'll read this extended uh, you know, four paragraphs for you because I, I think this is actually very important. And I quote David French, then there's the third key factor. Millions of Americans have formed families and live their lives in deep reliance on Obergefell being good law. It would be profoundly disruptive and unjust to rip out the legal superstructure around which 
They've ordered their lives. One senses the Supreme Court feels the same way. In fact, in his majority opinion in Dobbs v. Jackson, Whole Women's Health, Justice Alito went out of his way to state that the court's decision reversing Roe did not undermine Obergefell and a number of similar 14th Amendment precedents in any way. So here I am in 2022, trying to square the same circle that I was trying to square in 2004 and in 2015. I want Americans of different faiths and no faith at all to be able to live together, work together, form families, and live with peace, security, and dignity. I don't want my gay friends and neighbors to live in fear that the law might tear their families apart. I also don't want the law to treat me as a threat. I don't want the law to discriminate against those Americans who sincerely hold different views of sexual morality, sexuality, and marriage, and organize their lives and their institutions accordingly. I want aggressive, secular culture warriors to stand down, and if they choose not to, then I want the law to block their efforts to roll back the First Amendment. That's why I wrote Friday in The Atlantic in support of the Senate's version of the Respect for Marriage Act, not because I'm backing down one inch from Christian orthodoxy, but rather because it represents the best compromise I've seen yet that protects the rights and dignity of all Americans. So we'll stop right there, right? We'll stop right there for a second. David French wants to compromise. And here's the big divide between the never Trump types, the establishment Republican types, the more winsome uh, folks who are always looking to cut a deal with the left. They think if you compromise, then that will be satisfactory. The left will be satisfied. The left won't be satisfied. If you give a mouse a cookie, the mouse is going to ask for a glass of milk. We have been giving, thanks to the David Frenches, we've been giving the mice cookies for decades. And it's a it's a racket. If you would read David French, Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals, you would know that this is the plan. Ask for everything and then take what they'll give you and then come back again and ask for even more. And just keep doing that again and again and again and again. And meanwhile, the folks who want to compromise will say, ah, yes, but I've gotten to be good friends with people on the left. Well, that's what Saul Alinsky bragged about, was making friends with Catholic priests, for instance. Get to know them. Then, when the bishop or the cardinal or whoever catches on that you are going around the community trying to promote the legalization of contraceptives and birth control and abortion, then those priests will run interference for you and say, oh no, Alinsky's a really good guy. Yeah, I know him. We, we go shooting together. We play golf together. We have dinner together. We're in a book club together. He's the smartest guy I know. Come on, back off. And that's what's been happening. That's what's been happening for 50 plus years. And David French wants it to continue on happening. And I look at this and I think, why though? Right? Why? Uh, there's a scaredy cat, cowardice, Benedict Arnold aspect to it, uh, I think. And and we don't, uh, as a rule, look fondly on Benedict Arnold. History, 250 years of American history, has not looked kindly on Benedict Arnold. He felt like he should have been given more credit. He felt like he should have been more handsomely compensated. But he wanted to give American forts to the British to bring the war to a close and 
to be rewarded in closer proportion to what he thought his value was. And so also here, I think you have somebody in David French and and in a lot of these establishment types who perceive more reward coming from the left if they hand over our forts. And, and all the while they say, oh, no, I'm, I'm really on your side still. Yeah, you're actually the traitor, right? It, but no, it, it's that's not the case. That's not the case. You can't just give over your own side's forts and then claim that you're really the one who's been loyal all along. It doesn't work that way. But Carl Truman writes that this actually is uh, in some sense a positive that David French is coming out and saying the quiet part out loud. He writes for first things, uh, I welcome the clarity of David French's stand on the Respect for Marriage Act, even as I disagree with him. As Erasmus's diatribe on free will was for Luther fundamentally wrongheaded, but uniquely useful in focusing attention on the foundational insights of Luther's own theology. So French has done us a service. Orthodox Protestants in America can now have clarity on the way forward and the choices that lie before them. The elites are accommodating as I predicted they would, and new leadership is now needed, one that understands the exile nature of the church, the inevitable opposition of the world, and the importance of opposing the abolition of man at every turn. You you have a failure to recognize the gravity of the situation on the part of David French. And that's a large part also why the Donald Trumps and the folks who are in that camp are always so grating. They're always so abrasive to the nature of the David Frenches. Now, I I think I've been fairly critical of Trump for lacking discipline. I've never criticized him for being a fighter. I have criticized him for not being disciplined enough. And there's a big difference. I appreciate his fighting, but I don't appreciate his lack of discipline, his lack of self-control at certain points. But here in David French, you can see where sometimes what's presented as self-control and being nuanced is really nothing more than cowardice. I mean, his last name is French, after all. But this is the reason why (laughs) I started blogging in the first place. This is the reason why uh, I started podcasting, by extension, that there is a fundamental break between those who are said to be our leaders— Carl Truman's calling for new leadership in American Orthodox Protestantism. He's right to. Uh, There's a break between our elites and orthodoxy. They are too happy to cut a deal, and it can't be born. In our next episode, we're going to be talking about some additional links that were sent to me by my neighbor, two houses down, concerning religious liberty, concerning the relationship of law uh, to our Christian faith or our Christian faith to our engagement in politics. There's a video lecture I'd like to respond to and unpack for you a bit from Mark David Hall, uh, Herbert Hoover, distinguished professor of politics at George Fox University. He was invited to speak on the, quote, threat, end quote, of Christian nationalism by Mark Tooley, and the Institute on Religion and Democracy. His video is featured at Juicy Ecumenism. There's also a really great panel discussion that was put on by the Carl F.H. Henry Institute for Evangelical Engagement. 
that I want to talk about. Some really great discussion back and forth featuring Jonathan Lehman, who I've recently talked about on this podcast, a PC wrote for Nine Marks, where he is a chief editor. Also, too, there's a debate at Colorado Christian University that was sent to me from uh, just nine days ago. Uh, Jonathan Lehman and Bradford Littlejohn with the Davenant Institute debated religious liberty and the common good, how God's law should relate to our engagement as Christians in the political discourse. But stay tuned for that. That'll be our next episode, and we will get into why these things uh, pertain to David French's change of heart, his flip-flop, flip-flop on gay marriage and the Respect for Marriage Act is supporting it here recently. I got to run for right now, though. That's all for this episode. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.